Today's lecture is second in a three-part series investigating the culture of health and healthcare in America. The next program in the series, a lecture by Professor Susan Mizruki entitled Opioids, the Literary Experiential Point of View, will take place on Tuesday, June 13 at noon. All are welcome to join us. Today, Mimi Baird speaks to us. Born in Boston, she's a graduate of Colby Sawyer College. After working at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, she moved to Woodstock, Vermont, where she worked at the Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. There, a serendipitous encounter with a surgeon who had known her father prompted a quest to understand his life and legacy. This afternoon, she will speak again about this quest and her first book, He Wanted the Moon. Please join me in welcoming Mimi Baird. All right, we're going to have a little quiz before I begin. What country do you think? These are a replica of the cover of my book um, that has been purchased by Crown Publishing Random House by six other countries. I only have copies of three. Can you guess what country this is? Netherlands. Netherlands. Bingo. And the other, um, the other, the other three countries are Australia, um, mainland China, and very inter interestingly, South Korea. So the word, the word is getting out. <laughs> Mary, thank you so much for, for introducing me. And I'd also like to thank the following people who helped get me here and do the right thing. Hannah Wiseman, Victoria O'Malley, Deborah Vernon, who's back there doing books, Pat Jackson, right here, and uh, Jane Rabb and Patricia Bigger. Um, the title of this talk today is He Wanted the Moon and the Power of Stigma. Mental illness still carries a stigma not found attached to other illnesses. Despite the statistic that one in five adults have some sort of mental disorder. Few talk about it. Embarrassment, guilt, shame, and fear keep stigma alive and well. Until all humans acknowledge mental illness as just that and demand health care coverage funding from state governments, and increasing wages of those who devote their lives to trying to help, we will remain mired and the statistics will continue to increase. As always, I dedicate my presentation today to my father, Dr. Perry Cassart Baird, who endured multiple indignities and harsh hardships during his many incarcerations in mental institutions. 
straitjackets, wet packs, constant restraint, electroconvulsive therapy, insulin injections, isolation, and finally, regrettably, a lobotomy. My father desired to see a future where treatments were more humane for patients and who also envisioned a kinder, more tolerant perception on the part of mankind towards the mentally ill. My father was born in Mejia, Texas, shortly before his family moved to Dallas. He studied hard during his early academic years, finishing the University of Texas in just three years. He was proud of his acceptance at Harvard Medical School in 1924. He graduated in 1928 with the highest honors possible in that era. And I did check that with the alumni department at uh, Harvard. They, weren't, they had summa cum laude's, but they didn't have magna cum laude's, or maybe it's the reverse. He served his internship at the University of Michigan and his residency at Harvard. Shortly after his marriage to my mother, on Christmas Day, 1931, my father succumbed to a full-blown public attack on December 2nd, 1932. So they'd only been married, you know, just, just about a year while attending a medical meeting in New York. As a result, his appointment to a professorship at Harvard Medical School was withdrawn. A stark example of the stigma held those days towards the mentally ill and indeed today. In the 1930s and 40s, no effective medication for manic depression existed as there was little understanding of how the illness worked, had little compassion for its effects, but it can be exhilarating and fascinating to be in the presence of a manic depressive who is in an upswing. Life for them is fun, bright, and full of a bench of adventure. I remember my mother saying after she had her first date with my father that he was just plain fun. Um, on the other hand, when they were a manic depressive is coming off a high, the situation, as some of you may know, is quite the opposite. That person can be mean, loud, physically threatening, behave inappropriately, become totally unpredictable, and drink a lot. So it was, at times, with my father. My father wrote, the quickness and impulsiveness of actions and speech have a very disquieting effect upon others, and it is hard to maintain good judgment and full awareness of this effect on one's actions when you're in interacting with other people. 
And that certainly was illustrated with my father in his exuberant stages because he could be, you know, he could be, he could be scary. And um, I think a lot of that attributes to the stigma that surrounded his potential professorship and just his general relationship with people in the Boston area and why nobody went to visit him in institutions. There were several objectives in writing He Wanted the Moon. One was to fulfill my father's wishes to publish his manuscript, an 11-inch tall collection of onion skin paper totaling 1,172 pages. This is an amazing story on how I found uh, found this manuscript. As those of you who read the book know that uh, when I was working at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center uh, in 1991 in a chance conversation with one of the doctors I worked for, um, he said he knew my father. And I was 53 years old then and really didn't know much about why my father hadn't been in my life. Ironically, a year after that encounter with this with my, this doctor friend of mine, we were scheduled, the department was scheduled to have a national meeting in Dallas, Texas. And before, um, if I hadn't talked to Dr. Tanzer, who was the doctor, I would have gone to Texas and just done nothing, Dallas and done nothing. But I felt that talking to Dr. Tanzer was a sign, was an omen that I needed to find out about my father. I always had had something behind me. I had a feeling that this, there were things I needed to know. So when I went to Dallas, I looked up my, um, my uncle. My father had a younger brother, and he was still alive, and um, Uncle Philip. And so I called him, and we got together. We had to bury the hatchet to a degree. And just as he was leaving, my therapist calls it the door knob moment. It's when the most important, if you're seeing a therapist, the most important thing, you had, you had your 40, 45 minutes, and just before you leave, you talk about the thing that means the most. So for my Uncle Philip, the doorknob moment was, he said, oh, by the way, your father wrote a manuscript. And it is with, nobody wanted it, and it's with my youngest son, Randy Baird. Um, so you can see how these serendipitous, you know, one thing, like I was talking with you, Pat, just one thing builds on another. and. Um, so lo and behold, after I came back, um, Randy Baird and his wife sent me the manuscript. He had kept it in an, as you, you have read the book, kept it in an old briefcase in his garage. And um, it's amazing that it still existed. And I will talk about that later. Ever the teacher, as well as, ever the, do oh, excuse me, ever the doctor, as well as a teacher, he was often asked to teach the medical courses he was taking himself. My father wanted to educate the general public about what it was like to be mentally ill in order to defray the prevailing wind of stigma. 
He wrote this while incarcerated in Westboro State Hospital here in Massachusetts. His secretary brought him the paper and the number two pencils. You all remember those. When I received his work, the pages were completely out of order. One minute he was having lunch at the Ritz Hotel, and the next he was being restrained by strong-armed nurses. As I handled the pages, the lead from his pencils came off on my fingers, a surreal experience. We were connected after all those years. And I have to say that um, when I wrote the book, I wrote it at arm's length. I had to. I had to, had to be very scientific about it. But now that I, I go out and have the honor of talking to people like yourself, I, I hear these words, and um, so I, I tear up sometimes, so please forgive me. Um, when Tony Kushner, the accomplished film screen writer, and I went to visit Westboro in January of 2016, the following passage written by my father echoed as we walked through the grim, deteriorating buildings. I pray to God that in the future, I shall be able to remember that once one has crossed the line from normal works of life into a psychopathic hospital, one is separated from friends and relatives by walls thicker than stone, walls of prejudice and superstition. It may be hoped that psychiatric hospitals will someday become a refuge for the mentally ill and a place where they may hope to recover through channels of wise and gentle care. Another reason for writing the book was to reintroduce my father's scientific discoveries to today's medical community. My father was a patient at McLean Hospital in the fall of 1934. In between incarcerations at other institutions, he also conducted a portion of his scientific experiments at McLean. Because the doctors there were his friends and colleagues, he was allowed to go to the hospital and draw blood from patients who were actively manic at that time. He would then return to his laboratory and immediately inject the blood into his cats. It was my father's opinion that the disease he was suffering from was not psychological, but physiological. In other words, biochemical, which we know today, but they didn't know then. My father's teaching fellowship with Walter B. Cannon, the famous physiologist, and working with the eminent endocrinologist Fuller Albright on the early forms of cortisone. He was working with, my father was working with Dr. Albright on 
Corton, as it was known at that time, and as you know, this they use this, I mean, this is a life and death thing. They use this with people with Addison's disease. Um, anyway, working with those two eminent men, I believe, inspired the insight that led to my father's viewpoint. My father's preliminary findings were published in June of 1944 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease, an educational journal, journal of neuropsychiatry while he was a patient in Westboro. The doctors there wouldn't let him see his own article. His secretary finally brought it to him. One of the things about being a doctor and then being a mental health uh, patient is that a lot of people in these various institutions took a lot of their frustrations out on doctors because they had been subservient to doctors most of the time. And it was World War II. We have to remember that. And uh, there wasn't the stringent um, overseeing of taking care of patients as, as it is today. Um, anyway, uh, Dr. Matthew Friedman, a recently retired psychiatrist who works, um, who used to work at the uh, White River um, Veterans Hospital in Vermont, um, and an expert in the field of post-traumatic stress disorder, wrote me the following after reading my father's article. Your father was a true pioneer who recognized the importance of HPA, hypothalamic pituitary adrenocortical system dysregulation in affective disorders. Had he been permitted to pursue his initial studies, his work would have accelerated our understanding of the pathophysiology of affective disorders. But during his time, my father was descending from normalcy into the revolving state of manic depression psychosis from which there was, in his time, no return. And a, a, a footnote here, my father's paper on this hypothesis was published in, as I said, June of 1944. The paper by John Cade, an Australian doctor, who wrote with some of the same ideas as my father, only he worked with urine and my father worked with blood. He came um, up in 1949, and his paper got the attention of the medical world, lithium. He was also a proponent of lithium, and the rest is history. But my father's initial studies were published five years before John Cade. And um, Dr. Friedman that I just mentioned, he is going to try to get my father's paper republished, which um, I think is pretty exciting. So we'll see where that goes. Another objective for writing He Wanted the Moon was to examine the topic of keeping family secrets, to encourage families not to be silent, no matter how sad or tragic a situation is. I can illustrate this practice through my own family history. 
My grandfather on my mother's side was an accomplished lawyer who actually brought a case before the U.S. Supreme Court, a case that is considered one of ten landmark Supreme Court cases of our time and was pre presented in a C-SPAN documentary in the winter of 2016. My grandfather's case addressed the mandate of having to register for the draft. I think you all are familiar with that. And he lived, they lived at my uh, grandmother and grandfather on my mother's side lived um, just outside of Philadelphia. So, you know, there's a lot, that's a lot of Quakers in that neck of the woods. Months after appearing before the Supreme Court, he was hospitalized at the age of 44 for, quote, inappropriate behavior for the rest of his life. And he died at the age of around 72. My grandmother presented herself as a widow, again, evidence of the strong element of stigma. My grandmother was a suffragette going to Washington, as did others this past March, you remember that, and was the first female to serve on a school board in Ballack-Kinwood, Pennsylvania. My grandfather encouraged her at every turn, unusual in that era. After he was institutionalized, she descended into a deep depression which lasted a lifetime. Her sister brought up my mother and uncle. She lived with our family as a recluse in solitude, but I never knew why. No one said a word. My grandfather on my father's side was viewed in Dallas circles as unstable. Only after He Wanted the Moon was published did I find out he fathered a child out of wedlock? That's a hard thing today, but imagine it back then. This child is Ruth Baird Friedman. Her daughter wrote me about the situation. I now know my Aunt Ruth. She's a terrific lady, 92 years old. She's an artist and she too suffers from mood disorders. And my father wrote about her in the manuscript, but because of some of the bizarre ways he wrote about a lot of things, we didn't put that in the book because it would have been off message, and so we didn't. Um, and then me, I never knew the real story of, my, of why my father disappeared from my life until I was 53. A schoolmate of mine, Jane's and Tishy's, at Beaver Country Day School went to nursing school after graduation. She was required to do a rotation at McLean. After being told to check on a patient, she opened the door of the patient's room, and there was her aunt, who she had been told was deceased. Another example of stigma.
these examples of family secrets illustrate the ramification of stigma. And stigma, as it is handed down the generations, can affect family members, subtle or not so subtle. As my therapist once told me, you are carrying a heavy load of family silence on your shoulder. What she was saying really is the past shapes the present. There is a line in the book by M. L. Stedman, The Light Between Oceans. I'm sure some of you have read that. It's a fabulous book, which says, quote, history is that which is agreed on by mutual consent. That's how life goes on, protected by silence, end quote. Secrets need to come out of isolation. My daughter recently read a passage that said the following, when you heal yourself, you heal your ancestors. In an old issue of the New Yorker, there was an article about making peace with the past. The following sentence crossed my eye. By learning to live with our past, we learn to live with each other. A friend whose husband committed suicide said in a recent interview, by sharing our stories, we can develop coping methods and heal together as a human community. An unfortunate aspect of mental illness is that the disease can be hereditary. Being aware of our family history can allow us to be prepared to recognize symptoms that then in turn enable us to get a family member help, as well as to provide the essential love and support that person needs. Telling friends and neighbors the truth about a mentally ill person can help that person feel more at ease when interacting with others in their community. But stigma doesn't make this an easy task. My niece has been diagnosed with bipolar II, the modern term for manic depressive psychosis. And my Aunt Ruth, as I referred to before, suffers from mood disorders. Since childhood, my niece has been through the ringer, but has come up on the other side of this with great determination, courage, and resolve. She, still, she tells her story through a program called In Our Own Voice, which is sponsored by the National Alliance of Mental Illness, commonly known as NAMI. That's really the, the organization that uh, looks over uh, mentally ill issues in our country. She was also voted Volunteer of the Year in 2016 by NAMI in Burlington, Vermont. Other members of our family are increasing our awareness and understanding of this illness. No more secrets. 
The question and answer sessions after talks about he wanted the moon are very important. Many attendees need to connect. After one such session, a young man wrote me about his own ailment. Quote, my brain and mind are a huge spider web. I'm exhausted from the depression, the mania. Oh, the mania is relentless. How aggravating it is to be going along okay. And then like a meteor from the heavens comes this bout of mania. Out of nowhere, it strips you of your steadiness and turns your life upside down. And when it finally decides to leave, it gives you a gift of depression." End quote. Later, this individual writes me again, quote, I'm simply managing my life, doing what needs to be done to keep it moving, trying to be the best me I can. I, I just think that's terrific, end quote. There is light on the horizon for people like this young man. The Heinz C. Prechter Bipolar Research Fund at the University of Michigan, where I went to speak, uh, what an honor that was, are involved in several new initiatives that show promise. Their smartphone app is designed to identify new strategic risk factors for suicidal thought and behavior. And that is, is being designed like as, as a watch. So if you had those tendencies, you can, the way your body chemistry goes, you can be alerted that maybe you're getting into a dangerous phase of, of, of mania and you need to get to see your doctor. I think that's just you know brilliant. Um, that's one. Two, laboratory studies in basic cellular and molecular mechanisms underlining complex neuropsychiatric diseases such as bipolar disorder. Um, as you know, we can't um, work with human cells, but I went into their laboratory and saw cells of other um, animals um, under the microscope, and it was, um, it's fascinating uh, what they are doing uh, in the lab, shall we say. A, uh, three, a unique study following bipolar patients for their entire lifetime, and a comprehensive study of the effects of food on mental illness. My niece is enrolled in the Prechter Lifetime Study. And I want to tell you something um, that I learned from my trip out there. This, these group of scientists, they don't, if they've discovered something, they share it with other universities, other entities, and those entities share with them. In other words, collaboration. They're not competing against each other when you keep silent, but they share their information and that is terrific because that's going to make it faster to come up with some more answers as to this disease. Mental illness is a disease. One of the most respected authorities on manic depressive psychosis is Johns Hopkins professor 
K. Redfield Jameson. Her recent book about the poet Robert Lowell was published this year. I read it immediately. Since Robert Lowell and my father spent time in mental institutions, I thought it would be interesting to point out a few similarities between the writings of Lowell and the writings of Baird. So listen carefully. There were quite a few. I only have a few listed here. Lowell wrote about walls changing shape like limp white clouds. Baird wrote about the changing shape of the light bulb. Lowell wrote about his flight of ideas. And Baird wrote, my imagination took on the speed of light. Lowell wrote, my mind is alive. Bizarre associations sprang into mine like enchanted crickets. Baird wrote, my mind wandered with all anchorage eliminated. Lowell wrote that his dreams came to him in bright colors. Baird wrote, perception of color becomes intense. Lastly, Lowell wrote, your car I watch for never comes. Baird wrote, the effect of having no visitors is agonizing. No greater loneliness or despair can be imagined. Professor Jameson also wrote in her book about the future of mental disease. And this, this whole paragraph is a quote. Diagnostic and research classification, together with our basic understanding of psychiatric genetics, structural changes in the brains of patients with mood disorder, and how the brain functions during mania and depression is advancing rapidly. I think that's fascinating. They are the future of a clinical practice and are an important part of our understanding of the brain. They hold profound implications for treating and understanding not only mania and depression, but temperament, thinking, imagination, and many of the important things that make us human. McLean is conducting a study of 13 and 14-year-old brains. My granddaughter, Lindsay, is going to be part of that endeavor. The following are a few examples of my father's own words and hallucinations. I detected an odor of exhaust gas coming through the window as I lay there. I surmised that everyone in New England except us had been killed by gas released by the Japs. I dreamed of thousands of Japs disguised as American citizens invading the Boston area and I dreamed of an earthquake that made the Ritz Hotel topple over. My heart and soul are rent in agony. 
I visualize the migration of a tiger-like creature that flew on silver wings from a distant planet to Earth thousands of years ago. My thoughts dwelled upon world affairs, war and peace, how to deal with Russia, Japan, and Germany. I pictured a peace conference. My imagination took on the speed of light. I thought that the entire Westboro region had in some way detached from Earth and was catapulting through space like a rocket ship. Despair, that mood which paralyzes thought and action and makes eternal sleep a goal and a prayer. For many days during this time, the light bulb held my interest. I never knew what type of bulb it was, but it seemed to contain a gas, maybe a mercury vapor, which took on a kidney shape and slowly changed into other shapes, round and oval, and sometimes it looked like false teeth opening and closing slowly as in laughter or conversation. Somehow I cling to a feeling of confidence in the belief that my own personal destiny has some strange meaning beyond that which I can see in the past or nor predict for the future. So I hope you understand you all are here today and he would be so pleased that you were here today. My father's paper now resides safely at Harvard Medical School's Countway Library, where I conducted some of my research. My family hopes that future doctors, scientists, and interested parties will benefit from reading his work. And lastly, a word about the upcoming film of He Wanted the Moon. Brad Pitt company, production company, is called Plan B. They have optioned the book. Their past films have addressed the hard issues of our society. Selma, 12 Years a Slave, The Big Short, and most recently, Moonlight, all of them nominated for Academy Awards. They have never addressed mental illness and are proud and eager to do so. I would not sign my 86-page contract until I was convinced their depiction would be done with integrity, respect, and grace. Tony Kushner, the talented screenwriter, famous for his Pulitzer Prize-winning Angels in America, has signed on for He Wanted the Moon. He adores the book, and I adore him. <laughs> we have met three times, once visiting my Chestnut Hill neighborhood, including the Deer Park behind my home on Clovelly Road, but of course there, there are no deer there anymore. Uh, 
Chestnut Hill School, Beaver Country Day, Church of the Redeemer, and the Country Club. We spent some valuable time with the original manuscript at Harvard's Countway Library. I'm going to tell you a quick story about that. Tony had his last screenplay was Lincoln, and I'm sure some of you saw Lincoln. It took him a number of years to write that screenplay for Steven Spielberg. Tony Kushner mostly writes for Steven Spielberg, like Munich, Lincoln, whatever. Um, a lot of things are donated to Countway Library. When he saw my father's manuscript and the fact that everything, I mean, I tried to organize it the best I could, but it needed attention. It needed to be put in order. I, I did, as I say, the best I could, but to be documented, scanned, and then put away. Now, with, with um, Harvard getting, Countway Library getting all these donations, it was going to be a coon's age before they got around to doing this for my father's work. So Tony Kushner, when he got home, contacted Plan B. He got an estimate from Countway Library on how many people could do this, how many hours, and he wanted it done immediately. And this was in just before Christmas. So lo and behold, Countway Library wrote a proposal. Plan B gave them a grant, and all that work was done by the end of January. That is, I think that gives you an idea of the dedication that Plan B has towards my father's work. I, I, I just can't get over that. Um, another time we spent um, at Westboro, which I just read that quote. This past February, we spent three days in Woodstock. One day we went down to McLean Hospital and then visited with Dr. Francis DeMarnoff, the former superintendent of McLean's for over 50 years, at his retirement home at Fox Hill Village in Westwood. An early review of the film to be appeared in April of 2016 in Signature Reads, a Hollywood online magazine. Quote, Tony Kushner, I want you all to listen to this because it's very insightful. Tony Kushner has signed on to write the screenplay, which means it's bound to contain all the timely elements that makes this story so brilliantly mythological. The ethics, the science, the history, the mid century mores surrounding mental illness and the limitations of heteronormative family structures, especially in the intelligentsia of the U.S. Northeast. That's us. To conclude, I would like to share an experience I had just as the book journey was beginning at a psychiatry Grand Rounds presentation I was asked to give at Dartmouth Medical School. A distinguished gentleman sitting in the front row stood up at the end of the question and answer session and said the following, Mimi, 
on behalf of the field of psychiatry, I would like to apologize to you for the treatment your father received during those war years. It turned out that this doctor was the recently retired chief of psychiatry at Dartmouth. It's been an honor and a privilege to speak with all of you, and I'm happy to answer uh, any questions that you have.